0: Oh, oh, shine upon the darkness, oh, word of truth, shine bright. Abide with me forever, your law is my delight. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. That was Psalm 19, 7-11 from the Legacy Standard Bible, the passage I reference at the end of every episode. And this is Theonimony, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theonomy. The inerrancy of Scripture is a vital doctrine for Christianity as a whole, and every true regenerate believer in Christ should believe in this doctrine. It is also important because without this doctrine, theotomy is not better than any other man-made system of laws. If Scripture is not God's Word, If scripture is not the inerrant, infallible, God-breathed revelation of the triune God, then what hope is there for a system of laws rooted in scripture rather than one rooted in mankind's wisdom? But if those things are true of scripture, then how could we trust any system of laws that is not rooted and grounded in God's word? Because if not, it is rooted on a foundation of sinking sand or better yet, firmly grounded in midair. That is why in this episode we are looking at the inerrancy of scripture as one of the foundations of theonomy. A lot of this episode is adapted from a talk I gave in a 2019 Men's Muster Boot Camp session with Alex Rodriguez and some other guys. It saved a lot of work on my part to adapt what I had written from that and reuse it for this rather than start again from scratch on work I have done before. Work smarter, not harder. Now before we go any further, I want to ask y'all to subscribe to the podcast and turn on the auto-download if you haven't already and tell your friends about it. I also want to give a shout-out to my pastor Darren Stid, who is also an assistant national director of Operation Save America, because a sermon he... Recently, preached on the inerrancy of scripture gave me the idea to make that an episode of theonomy because of how vital inerrancy is for Theonomy. Also, to sum up some confusion some listeners may have had with me talking about like preaching and stuff like that. So, I never really talked about on the podcast, but when I first launched Theonomy, I was the English pastor of a Korean church and uh, I held that position for a a bit over two years earlier this year i uh, no longer hold the position don't worry it's not like some crazy thing happened and i was like removed forcefully from being passed or anything like that it was just the church moved from having separate korean and english services to having only korean services which honestly is much better for the church because it was separating those korean american couples with usually the wife because they met when the guy was serving in the military the wife over on the Korean side for the Korean service and the husband on the English side for the English service and so it was really better for them to uh, no longer have a separate English service and um, with that my wife and I moved to Harmony Baptist Church where Darren Stid, a name some of the listeners might recognize where he pastors and that's where we've been since March of this year So just to clear up some confusion and talk about some more personal stuff I never mentioned on the podcast before. So diving into the main part of this episode, I first want to read Isaiah chapter 40 verses 12 through 26. And just like Psalm 19 at the beginning of the episode, this will also be in the Legacy Standard Bible. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and encompassed the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he take counsel, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and made him know the way of understanding? Behold, The nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the coastlands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as non-existent and utterly formless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the graven images, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished to make such a contribution chooses a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a wise craftsman to prepare a graven image that will not be shaken. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who inhabits above the circle of the earth, and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to inhabit. It is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth utterly formless. Scarcely have they been planted, Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them, and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name, because of the greatness of his vigor and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. You may be wondering why I read this passage, that is, about God specifically, when this Theonimony episode is about God's word. That is because since God is the one who wrote scripture, what is true of scripture is true because it is true of the author of scripture because god is perfect scripture is perfect because god does not lie scripture cannot lie because god is true scripture is true because god has all authority scripture is authoritative and so on i could keep going just thinking of more and more examples to give there this passage describes God's beauty and power and majesty and greatness to us. I mean, behold our God, what's probably going to be seen in future years as the, one of the best Christian songs of our generation, was written, pulling largely from this uh, chapter here in Isaiah, Isaiah 40. We serve a God who measures all of the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand. A God who knows the number of every grain of sand on the planet. A God who can weigh mountains at a scale, like we weigh apples at the grocery store. He has no counselor. He has no equal. He has no one who can point out a flaw of his or correct him for a mistake. Because he has no flaws, makes no mistakes, and never lies, always speaking truthfully. Because God never lies, always speaks truthfully, and is perfect, those same attributes are true of scripture because God is the author of scripture. The Bible never lies. The Bible always speaks to us truthfully. The Bible is perfect. There are a couple of theological terms that describe these characteristics of scripture. They are inerrancy and infallibility. These terms are related, and often people use them interchangeably, but they have nuances that differentiate them. Blue Letter Bible puts it this way. Infallibility means incapable of making a mistake, while inerrancy means the absence of any error. The word infallible means trustworthy. Inerrancy means there are no errors whatsoever. Inerrancy contends that the Bible does not have any errors of fact or any statements that are contradictory. Inerrancy is more concerned with the details of Scripture. End quote. From this we see that these terms are very similar, and that is why many people use them interchangeably. However, as Blue Letter Bible explained, there are differences between the two. Infallibility is more broad and says that scripture as a whole is trustworthy, whereas inerrancy is more specific and detail-oriented, saying that scripture contains not even a single error. Both of these truths are vital to us as Christians because we are people of the book, a book that is perfect and must be so, because it cannot, can, cannot be the certain, objective word of God if it is not. It does not matter that much how close the Iliad or the Odyssey is to the original words, because no one is basing their life around those words. But many people are basing their lives around the Bible. So knowing what the original words were is vital for all of us who trust it as our source of authority in all matters of faith and practice. To begin, I am going to read several passages from the chicago statement on biblical inerrancy this statement was written in 1978 to fight against those who were questioning the perfection of the bible saying that it had errors in it and that at best it contained the perfect word of god but was not in its entirety the word of god friends such beliefs undermine our christian faith which is why the Chicago Statement was necessary. So here we have some words from that statement. Opening Statement, Paragraph 4 Being wholly and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace, and individual lives. Article 3. We affirm that the written word in its entirety is revelation given by God. Article 6. We affirm that scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters it addresses. Article 7. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud, or deceit. Article 16 We affirm that the doctrine of inerrancy has been integral to the Church's faith throughout its history. And finally, Article 19 We affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith we have further affirmed that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. These excerpts from the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy show us how important the belief in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture is to our faith as Christians. To deny these things is to completely undermine our faith. However, as important as the Chicago Statement is, it is not the highest authority scripture is that is why we are going to look at a couple passages from scripture where it claims such a high standard for itself because we know that scripture interprets scripture to do that we are going to look at how jesus and paul in the pages of the new testament spoke of or quoted the old testament in ways they could not have if it is not the inerrant word of god down to the very last letter in Matthew 5:18, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Other translations say, not an iota, not a dot, instead of, not the smallest letter or stroke. Iota, or iota, as uh, my Greek teacher taught us to say it though we are talking about a 2000 year old language and modern greek has differences in pronunciation iota or iota is the smallest letter in the greek alphabet and a dot is a quote tiny extension that distinguishes certain letters of the hebrew alphabet in this verse jesus is promising us that as long as the earth exists not the smallest letter not so much as a single stroke that distinguishes one letter from another will pass from God's word. My brothers in Christ, it is that trustworthy. Jesus, God in the flesh, tells us that his word will be transmitted properly here, because if it were not, then this would be a lie, and we know that God cannot lie. Another passage in the New Testament that speaks to the perfection and inerrancy of Scripture is Galatians 3.16. In that verse, Paul writes, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. We see here that Paul is making a theological point from the difference between the word seed being singular or plural. If Paul believed that Scripture just has good things to say, or that it simply contained somewhere within it the Word of God, then he would not have made such a major point about whether a single word was singular or plural. It is only because Paul trusts that God's Word is trustworthy and without error down to such a minute degree that he is able to make such a point. Thus we see that Paul, a man through whom God wrote scripture, believed that scripture was without error and perfect. Now that we have studied the biblical support for why scripture is inerrant and infallible, we should also study the historical side of why it is such. We study the biblical side first because the Bible, as the ultimate standard, must support itself. For something else to give the Bible the evidence it needs to be proven true would mean that the other thing is higher and more authoritative than the Bible. And we know that God's word contained in these 66 books of scripture is our highest authority. God wrote the Bible and he said that it is inerrant and infallible, both of which on their own would prove that it is. The historical arguments for the accuracy of Scripture and its transmission throughout the centuries are thus not to be viewed as the reason we trust trust Scripture, but only as corroborating or supporting evidence, giving credit to the fact that we already trust Scripture because God says that it is trustworthy. What I am about to explain here is called textual criticism, It is where we look at all of our texts and manuscripts of both the Old and New Testaments to determine as best as we possibly can what they originally said when the writers of Scripture first wrote them down. This is a helpful field of study that helps us see that we truly can trust the reliability of Scripture and that God truly did preserve His inspired Word. Let's first look at the Old Testament. Textual criticism of the Old Testament was for centuries dominated by manuscripts known as the Masoretic Text. The Masoretic Text was made by a group of Jewish scholars who were big in the 7th to 11th centuries AD. But everything changed when the Dead Sea Scrolls attacked. The Dead Sea Scrolls, also known as the Qumran Scrolls, were found in caves near the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea in 1947. There were over 200 scrolls, and they were all written between about 250 BC and AD 70, making them around a thousand years older than the Masoretic Text, which was the previous standard. More importantly than just having older manuscripts, as great as that is, we also learned how accurate transmission of the Hebrew Old Testament throughout the years was, because the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Masoretic Text match each other almost perfectly. Even when there were differences, it was usually something small like one letter and a word being different. What that does is show us that across those thousand years of history, the text of the Old Testament Hebrew more or less stayed exactly the same. If that is not support for the trustworthiness of the Old Testament, I don't know what is. Now that we have looked at support for the accuracy of the Old Testament and its textual history, we must also look at the arguments for the New Testament as well. First, let's look at some of the arguments against the reliability of the New Testament and refuting them. One is that the transmission of the New Testament from the original manuscripts, through the texts and manuscripts in between, to the translations in modern languages is like a game of telephone that lasts 2,000 years. Y'all remember playing the telephone game when you were children, right? One person says something to someone at the beginning of a line, who says it to the next person in line, and the next person, and so on until it gets to the end. Then you have that last person say what he or she heard, and everyone laughs about how different it is from what was originally said. And because throughout the line, small changes were made here and there until they became big changes at the end. Thus, the argument is that if 20 people cannot transmit a single sentence accurately, how could thousands of people over the course of 2,000 years transmit thousands of sentences accurately? While that sounds pretty good at first, it honestly is a pretty terrible argument. First, we are talking about oral transmission, but written transmission, which is much more faithful and trustworthy, is how the Bible was translated. The Bible wasn't an oral game of telephone, it was copying down what someone else had already written down before. That alone makes it much more trustworthy to begin with and not an accurate comparison between the two. Second, you do not have scribes working alone to transmit from one single manuscript to another. You see, in the time immediately after the apostles' lives, there was a multitude of people writing their own copies of the scripture so that they could read it for themselves, mostly at their local churches because it was difficult for everyone to have their own copy when they had to be handwritten. But some people, I'm sure, did, maybe more wealthy Christians who could afford to pay a scribe to write the entire New Testament, maybe even the entire Bible for them. Because of that, it was probably rare for a single scribe to be working alone copying scripture from a single manuscript. You had multiple people writing multiple copies and checking each other's work because they had a high value of, on God's word and did not want to see it corrupted. What I mean in there is you might have a church with a couple copies of the New Testament or specific books of the New Testament and uh, someone at the church is making copies of it in order to give to you the next church they're planning to you know start in the next city over as they send some people over there to try to get a group of believers in the next city over and so they have a few copies of the new testament for themselves and they're handwriting that down and giving it to other christians and dispersing it among peoples in their church to you know different people take a section of it home each week trying to read it and memorize it and stuff like that so you have people working from multiple copies of the bible at a time Even if there were only one person copying it, there were likely others who would check his work for errors. More than that, scribes were not likely to be copying from only a single manuscript unless they only had one available. To be sure he was as accurate as possible, a scribe's ideal would be to copy from multiple manuscripts so that if there were any differences between them, he could compare them against one another and determine which manuscript was correct. So we do not have one copy made from the original manuscript, and another from that copy, and another from that copy for 2,000 years. We have dozens made from the original manuscript, and another dozen from each of those, and another from each of those, and so on. Another important detail related to this that is left out is the correcting of scribal errors that would occur. Whenever a church had multiple copies of the New Testament in their possession, they would compare and cross-reference them to correct any differences that might be there. This was especially true and even easier in the earlier days of the church when the apostles themselves or their close associates were alive. If Luke, whom we know from the book of Acts, traveled a lot with Paul, was visiting a church and noticed an error in their copy of one of Paul's epistles. Luke may be able to correct it because he might have been with Paul when the original copy was written. Through methods like this, a lot of scribal errors that were made were corrected so that the New Testament has stayed consistent throughout the centuries and millennia since it was written. Another argument that some critics of scripture's trustworthiness attempt to use is that there were other supposed gospels written, They claim that early Christians had many Gospels from which to choose and simply selected the ones that they liked best, having no objective criteria when selecting one over another. My friends, that argument is simply not true. Yes, there are other books that claim to be Gospel accounts, such as the Gospel of Thomas. However, none of these meet the criteria that are necessary to be considered genuine, God-inspired Scripture. Let me explain some of the criteria that are used when the early church did the work of figuring out which books were inspired by God and which were not. Also, let me explain my specific wording there. The believers in the early church did not make a book become part of scripture and inspired by God on their own authority. They simply recognized which books God had already inspired. To do this, they used specific criteria like the author of the book. A book of the New Testament had to be written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle, such as Luke who was close with Paul. On this category, many of the false gospel accounts fall short because they were written long after the apostles and their close associates had died, even if they lied and claimed to be written by one of those. They were written afterwards by someone else. Another criterion was that the book had to be completely consistent both with itself and with the other books of Scripture. If it said something in one place, but something that contradicted that in another, it could not be Scripture because Scripture is inspired by God and He never contradicts Himself. It is on those first two criteria that books like the Gospel of Thomas fall short. That supposed gospel is not consistent with the full witness of Scripture, and while it claims to have been written by the Apostle Thomas, It was actually written by another person claiming his name. There is another criteria that I grant is less important than the others, but any book that fell short of this one fell short on at least one of the other criteria as well. This one is that the book sounds or feels like scripture when you read it. Because of the subjective nature of this criterion, it is always listed last but it is a valid one. You can read any book of the Bible and then read the Quran or the Book of Mormon, although in the days of the early church, they would have compared it with other books because these did not yet exist. And there is a noticeable difference. So while this is not a perfect measure, whether a book felt and read like scripture was important, especially because the early church trusted the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives as they made these important decisions. All of the books we accept as part of the canon of the New Testament met all of the criteria the early church had as being necessary to recognize it as being inspired by God, and all of the other books that claimed they were part of scripture fell short on at least one although usually multiple or even all of the criteria. And by the way, the list I just gave was not an exhaustive list. That was just some of them. And now that there has been nearly 2,000 years of church history, we have another criterion that while not as high in authority as the others, is still something that we should consider. We can now look at almost two millennia of history and say that these 66 books have been regarded by Orthodox believers to be scripture. And only in these 66 books. When we see groups in history begin to accept other books as well, then we usually see other things that concern us. Typically some sort of heretical belief that puts them outside of Christianity. Now that we have looked at the arguments against the reliability of the New Testament, let's look at the arguments that support its reliability and trustworthiness. First, the number of manuscripts of the New Testament is amazing. It far outdoes any other work of antiquity concerning the number of manuscripts. While the number is always changing as we discover more, or realize that we thought what well, we thought were two different copies were actually two parts of the same one, the total number of Greek New Testament manuscripts exceeds 5,700. Granted, these are not 5,700 complete copies of the Greek New Testament, Many may be just one book, or only part of a book. However, the point still stands that no work of antiquity comes close to that number, and that is just manuscripts in the original Greek. We have more than 10,000 copies of Latin New Testaments, and thousands more in Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, and other languages. This is downright astounding, especially considering that for the first few centuries of the Church, the Roman Empire destroyed every copy they could get their hands on, and for the ones that survived, the ravages of time over nearly 2,000 years does a lot of damage to pieces of parchment and papyrus. Not only that, but we have so many quotations of the New Testament and early church writings that we can reconstruct most of the New Testament using those quotations alone. These large quantities of manuscripts of the New Testament and quotations from it, along with the fact that some of our manuscripts are far, are from the 2nd century, only a couple of generations after the last books were written, is overwhelming evidence in support of the trustworthy of the New Testament. In fact, our problem with determining the original words of the New Testament is not knowing whether or not we have it all, We have what the autographs, the original manuscripts of the New Testament, we have what they said, and then some variations. We're not trying to put together a thousand-piece puzzle with only 990 pieces, where we have to guess what the other ten are. We are putting together that puzzle and have 1,010 pieces, where we have to determine which extra pieces don't belong. I'm going to say that again. We're not trying to put together a thousand-piece puzzle with only 990 pieces, where we have to guess what the other ten are. We're putting together that puzzle and have 1,010 pieces, where we have to determine which extra pieces don't belong. But the person attempting to refute the credibility of the New Testament may respond that even though we have so many manuscripts, there are many differences between them, so the sheer number of copies doesn't mean much. They are correct. There are a lot of variations between our 5,700 Greek manuscripts, upwards of 200,000 or more. But the number of differences doesn't mean much when those differences are so small as to be irrelevant. Let me explain it with a story. Suppose that a friend of mine becomes big and famous one day, so someone writes a biography about him. Since he and I are close, I'll probably show up in that biography at least once or twice. My name is Jeremy, spelled J-E-R-E-M-Y. But other people with the same name as mine spell it J-E-R-O-M-Y, or J-E-R-E-M-I, in the case of Jeremy who runs Dropwave, my podcast hosting website. If the author of this biography spelled my name with one wrong letter, we wouldn't say that is enough to disqualify the entire book, would we? It is much the same for many supposed errors of the New Testament. Just a simple difference in spelling that may not even affect the pronunciation of the word. For example, in Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, an epsilon followed by an iota makes the same sound as an eta. A scribe mixing up those two spellings makes no difference in the text, but opponents of the New Testament's trustworthiness use things like that to undermine it by just calling them differences and not explaining what is actually different. In fact, we should expect such differences because we have so many manuscripts. There is more margin for error. If we only had 12 copies of the Greek New Testament, we would not have nearly so many differences. So the fact that we have thousands of them is a good thing because that reflects how many manuscripts we possess and allows us to cross-reference them all with one another to reflect the original as closely as possible. I want to close with one last and very important truth about Scripture and why we can still trust it today as we could when it was first written. God is sovereign over the transmission of Scripture and Christ will build his church, not leaving her without his word. All of this evidence that supports that the New Testament was transmitted accurately and is trustworthy is what we would expect to find because we know that our sovereign Lord is not only capable of giving us his word, but keeping it throughout thousands of years so that his people throughout all generations can read it, repent and believe the gospel, and grow in holiness, becoming more like Christ each day until the day that we see him face to face and are made sinless, as he is sinless. So on this foundation, we see that God's word is perfect because it is the word of the triune God who is perfect. And that triune part is is important. As I said at the beginning, the Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. And God is the only being in existence who is all-knowing and all-wise. So how could we have the inerrant revelation of that God and base our laws on any lower standard? That was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law, in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection, to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends.